Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Amen. Amen. So we are going to do Revelation chapter 20 tonight. And I am going to get through Revelation chapter 20. But before we go into Revelation chapter 20, and this is part 10, as I've divided the notes, the establishment of the kingdom of God, the establishment of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. And that's what we're going to be talking about, is him establishing his kingdom on the earth. The thing that we've been praying for for 2,000 years. Because when the disciples asked him to teach us to pray, a part of that prayer is, Thy kingdom come. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And though it may take 2,000 years in our counting, it's just been two days in his county. And before we open up Revelation chapter 20, I want to read a few of the beginning verses from Psalm uh, 2, from the second Psalm. We've read this several times as we go through Revelation, but I want to read it again tonight. Why? Because it is very appropriate for the world we're in right now. Why are the nations in an uproar? and the people's devising a vain thing. And the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is against his Messiah, against his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. They're referring to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us tear apart uh, the fetters the bind, the bonds of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and let us cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Revelation chapter 20 is a description of the installation of the King of Kings upon the holy mountain in Mount Zion, of the coming of the kingdom of God on this earth, the 1,000 year reign of Christ that we're going to be talking about um, tonight. Um, this morning, I woke up, I don't even know why, but I woke up feeling exceedingly refreshed. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know, I just sleep the same right now. I woke up with this, you know, sometimes you wake up with a good feeling, sometimes you don't. And it doesn't really matter, we walk by faith, not by sight. But it's nice sometimes when you wake up feeling faith in your heart, you know what I'm saying? And I just woke up this morning with this feeling of laughter in my heart, like in Psalm 2. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm not laughing, then I'm not doing what God's doing. Because God is laughing, He is rejoicing. And uh, he's not worried about what's happening in the world today. And uh, then I looked at some news this morning, and I uh, saw things that are happening in uh, Ukraine, Russia, all that stuff right now that are affecting our entire world. And I realized that there are a lot of things for people to be worried about today. A lot of things for people to be worried about. But God is not worried about uh, those things at all. And as we begin chapter 20, I want you to uh, see right off the bat why God's not worried about those things at all. And it's not just because he's God, but it's because his son, our Messiah, the son of man and the son of God, has conquered death. And he has conquered sin. And there is no power that can stand against him. And so he has all power. As my friend Kevin Mullen, the Kangaroo Priest from Missouri, always says, I've read the back of the book and I know we went. So we're at the back of the book now and we know that we went. And we have to focus on that victory that we have because we need to be walking in that victory today. Tonight, it'll probably happen about 10 o'clock this evening. It's already pre-recorded. I don't know what they're going to end up doing. But the president of Russia, Putin, is going to make a speech. And many people are thinking that he's going to declare all-out war on Russia. So far, this is actually not a war. It's a military uh, operation, and they haven't declared all-out war. They haven't mobilized, you know, drafted anybody or sent exceedingly. In fact, their number of troops in Ukraine have actually been this entire time smaller than the number of the Ukrainian troops. And a lot of people in Washington and 
in France and in Germany and all around the world are talking about this. Nobody knows what the speech is gonna say. Nobody knows what it's gonna be about. It might not be about that at all. Nobody even knows. Uh, but uh, the whole world right now, whether you know this or not, is up in arms about what's going to happen tomorrow. Because in the uh, Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine that this war has been about, if you don't believe me, thanks Todd, he'll tell you all about this, all this stuff. Uh, the people that live there, they really want to be a part of Russia. And they have since 2014. And so now they've declared in all those regions that this week they're going to vote on this. And you know the vote's going to come out, yes, we want to be a part of Russia. And Russia is going to most likely, as I understand the scenario that seems most likely, will immediately declare that territory their territory. Which I know that sounds so not 21st century. How could they do that? But don't forget that that's how Nevada became a state, if you don't know the history of Nevada. In the Civil War, there weren't really enough people here according to the Constitution to make the state, but Lincoln really needed this to be a state, and so it became a state. And uh, lots of our states became states in the same way. Nobody had any pity on any of the tribal people that lived here. And the state I grew up in, Oklahoma, we even learned in Oklahoma history, you know, that the promise was made to the tribes when they were sent there, they weren't from there, they were all sent there, that uh, this land shall belong to you until for as long as the sun rises and sets or something like that. We had to learn it in school, I remember. And then they discovered oil. Uh, sorry, that's not your land anymore. <laughs> it became a state. And if you don't know this, the worst football team in the world, Oklahoma University, is Sooners. We hate the Sooners. That's why I go orange for the Cowboys. But uh, even though my son works for that college now. But... Uh, anyway, the, their name, the Sooners, you know, if you ever watch football, Sooner Boomers, Sooner Boomers, you know what the Sooners were? Those were people that came onto the land sooner and cheated and stole the land away. But the point is, this is just the history of nations. This is the history of wars. Whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, that, that's what's happening right now. And like I was talking to you about last week, sometimes just to give you an open window to understand how Russians think, they, Russians think and the people that live there think that that land should be a part of Russia. Well, that's not gonna set well with anybody in Washington. I don't know what's gonna happen, you know, but I have a prayer in my heart. And it sounds like a crazy prayer, but when I woke up this morning, I had it again. Like the Lord is just calling me to pray for this to end and for it to end very soon and for there to be peace and for there to be an opportunity for the gospel to be preached again. I know these things in Revelation are coming, but I also know we still need revival. We need people to be saved, and the Lord is very patient. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I want you, no matter what kind of news you hear, or what's going on in the world, I don't want you to walk in fear. I don't want you to be afraid. You know, if there were a nuclear uh, war, limited or extensive, you know, there's things that we can't control, but we can control whether we walk in fear or in faith. And we need to walk in that faith. You know, we need to stand in that faith. And so I want to start with Revelation chapter 20, and I want you to see this at the very beginning. It says, let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, then I saw, so Jesus has come back, Armageddon has happened, all that, you know, that we've been talking about. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. Remember, the abyss is the bottomless pit. We talked a lot about that. It's the place, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and according to Jude 6, where angels have been bound and they await judgment. So it's sort of like a holding cell or a jail cell for fallen angels who have crossed over the line. Okay, Satan has never been put in that place before. He's not in that place right now. The devil does not live in hell. He's right here on this earth, tormenting people, tempting people, and trying to put himself off as an angel of light. Okay, he doesn't have little horns and a pitchfork and a pointy tail. Maybe he has that, but that's not how he appears. He appears as an angel of light and very, very deceptive. Uh, but he's going to be put there in this place. So. Uh, I saw this angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. 
They lay hold of the dragon, remember he's called the dragon in chapter 12, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He puts out four names for him, so that we know for certain he's not talking about some low-class demon. He's talking about the devil himself. And bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, after this thousand years, he must be released for a short time. So let's talk about that just for a few minutes. The first thing I wanna focus on is the key to the abyss. So if we go back over to Revelation chapter one, this also we talked about, I'll put it together. Revelation chapter one, in verse 18, in the first vision that John has of Jesus, um, and Jesus is speaking to him in verse 18. He says, I'm the living one, and I was dead. Anybody that teaches that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, there's whole cults and sects of people that teach that, people that think that, you know, that he didn't really actually die. You know, that's not true. He actually died. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Jesus, at the very beginning of the book, reveals to John that when I died and I went into the lower parts of the earth and I was raised again from the dead by my Father, by that resurrection from the dead, I conquered death and Hades. I conquered everything in the underworld, everything concerning death. And I took the keys of death and Hades. Okay? Then look at chapter 9. Verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And then we read about how he opened the bottomless pit, smoke went up out of the pit, and these angels were unleashed from, these fallen angels were unleashed from the pit. When we looked at chapter 9, we talked about that. And they were released upon the earth to torment people. But notice that this fallen, a fallen angel opens the bottomless pit, okay? But the key is given to him, but he has to give the key back. Still, Jesus has the key. So that we see right away with that, that nothing happens on this earth ultimately without God orchestrating the outcome of it. It's God's sovereignty, and we have to trust in his sovereignty. It has to be the pillow on which we lay our heads at night and sleep in peace. That we can trust in God. If he has the key of death and of Hades, then I would not be uh, too bold to say that if any person dies, they die according to the timing and the purpose of God. And I know that's harsh, and it sounds harsh, when you think about that people have died out of time. You know, you know, children that have died, babies that have died, people that we love that have died. You know, my mom died when she was younger than I am right now. It's shocking to me. But I remember when she died, I kept asking God, why, why? I didn't know any woman that was more righteous than my own mother. And I remember just getting no answer to why from God. Only the answer, you just got to trust me. <laughs> and the answer of, she's not really dead. You know, she's going to raise from the dead. And you look at it as she's dead. I don't look at it like that. There's just a period of time before she's going to be raised from the dead. And your mom is going to be uh, right before your eyes in a glorified body better than you ever knew your mom before. So we can trust God. You know, I don't ever want to go to war. I don't want any of my sons and daughters to go to war. You know, I don't want to end up in situations like that. But if we were in a situation... Not because of our own foolishness or presumption, but because we had to be in that situation. You know, we can trust God that he has the key of death and of Hades. That if, if we were, to, you know, there came a day when all of these disciples died and they trusted the Lord that that day was in God's hand. So there's nothing to fear. You don't see that fear on Paul in the book of Acts or on Peter or on John, right? You don't see that fear on them because they trusted the time of their lives into God's hand. Our times are in his hand. So he has the key of death and of Hades. And it says here in chapter 20, verse 1, 
that an angel comes down from heaven holding the key of the abyss. So Jesus gives the key to an angel. That's another interesting point I want to bring up. Notice that many times in the book of Revelation, when God has sent an angel to deal with, the, with some emissary or power of the devil, it says, and I saw a great angel. You remember that? It happens several times. Notice that it does not say this here. I actually kind of think this is significant. I love it. It just says, I saw an angel. You know, it doesn't say, I saw Michael the archangel. I mean, Satan is so defeated that God dispenses him with just an angel. It might be just that lowly guardian angel that Kevin has or something. I don't know who it is, but it's not the high-placed archangel. God never had to have the archangel deal with Satan if he didn't want to. He could always have dispensed with Satan. So why does he allow Satan to still act on this earth? And why would he let him out after a thousand years? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, if that happened in our time, that, that district attorney wouldn't get reelected. You just let the devil out of jail. And we're going to read that here in chapter 20. Why would he do that? Well, I, I think there's some different reasons for that. And uh, I'll, I'll give them to you in, in just a few minutes. Right now, let's not focus on him getting out, but focus on him being put in there. Notice that it says that the earth, just as Jesus cleansed the temple, the earth is cleansed from the devil's deception. And it's cleansed from the corruption of sin. You and I have no imagination of what this earth would be without the devil's deception and without the corruption of sin. We cannot even imagine. You know that song, I Can Only Imagine? No, we cannot imagine. We've never lived in any environment where there was no deception from Satan. There was no temptation from the devil. And there was no corruption of sin. He's returning us back to what we were created for, to the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's, it's not yet the remaking of the earth. That comes out in a thousand years. We'll get to it later. But it's the perfect kingdom of God. And we'll live in this kingdom of God. And yet, after a thousand years, he will release him. So sometimes people have this question, and different Christians argue about it. It's probably not really a big deal if somebody has a different point of view. Is this going to come out the way it's going to come out? But I very strongly believe that although many numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation, that the 1,000 years is not symbolic. Uh, that it's actually speaking of 1,000 years uh, period of time. And there are several reasons for that. One of the reasons is that it's repeated six times right here in a very short space of time. Like there's a focus put on it. The other reason is that there's no reason not to think that it's 1,000 years. There's nothing that says here it's like a thousand years or it's as a thousand years, even though we have that language throughout the book of Revelation. But if we go over to Second Second Peter chapter three, we actually can find a confirmation of this because in Second Peter chapter three, it always means a lot when the word confirms the word, when another scripture confirms the scripture that we're looking at. But in Second uh, Peter chapter three, in uh, verse seven, it says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved uh, for fire. So he's just been talking about the flood of Noah, and he's talked about the earth that existed before the flood of Noah, and that after the flood of Noah, we live on a different earth. Does that mean God made a different planet? No, it's the same planet, right? Uh, but it was it's a completely different earth. After the flood, the whole face of the earth changed. You can go around this valley and find much where not just this valley, but around Nevada, and find loads of evidence that the earth was changed by catastrophe. And everything we're living in right now used to be underwater. It's obvious, but it's not underwater right now. So there's a great catastrophe. The world changed. God started the human race over with Noah and his family. All the people that lived before were completely dead and completely wiped out. Uh, I don't know about dinosaurs. People are always asking about that. You can find scientists that can tell you more about that. But everything on this earth changed. That we know. And, but it says that we, the, the world we live in right now is going to change also. This isn't the permanent state of the world. It says, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, okay? And a thousand years like one day. 
So he says the way we count a thousand years, that to God is just like one day. And the way that God counts one day, that to us is just like a thousand years. By the way, and this ruffles some people's feathers, uh, there are things in the Bible I just don't know about, I'm sure. But it's, it's very possible that the six days of creation are six epics of creation. They don't have to be 24-hour days. I know some people are, how can you say that? That's blasphemy. It's not blasphemy. <laughs> we just don't really know what God means by day then, especially uh, for those days before the sun was even created. Because you couldn't have a 24-hour day without the sun. Just think about that. But that's not really a big deal. What is a big deal is God doesn't count time the way that we count time. And, and, and so we've got to get on to God's schedule. We've got to get on to his calendar. He says, uh, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then he goes on talking about the new heaven and new earth. We're not going to get that tonight, so I'm not going to look at that uh, right now. So, if we follow the Bible times since the creation of Adam and the ages of people since the creation of Adam, because they're all written down there for us. And I know that people can argue with this and say, you know, man's been on this earth for 10,000 years or 20,000 years or whatever, and we have proof of that or something like that. Or what about Neanderthal man? What about cavemen and all that kind of stuff? But, and I don't believe in any of that stuff. But without even touching on that, we don't need to even talk about that. Because we're talking about the Bible. So if we take the Bible account, okay, we have been on this earth approximately for 6,000 years. That's six days. And how many days are there in a week? Seven days. And God set everything out to follow that Sabbath pattern. So if this were to happen sometime in the very near future, it would make a whole lot of sense to me that there would be another 1,000 years. A Sabbath rest for this earth before the great judgment because the great judgment doesn't come until the thousand years is finished okay but another thousand years of Christ's reign upon this earth so for those reasons and and others i really believe that this is a literal thousand year uh, reign jesus will reign on the throne of david from jerusalem and he will reign over all the nations and this is promised over and over again in the old testament Look with me at Micah chapter 4. Look at a few verses. There are many more. At Micah chapter 4. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah chapter 4. And verse 2 says, Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to Mount Zion, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares. Anybody ever heard that? It's at the United Nations. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. Just that alone makes it good to me. How many of you would like to have a vine and a fig tree to sit under? You're going to have at least your own vine and fig tree to sit under. No one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And then we go over to Zechariah, which is a little bit further on closer to the New Testament. You go over to Zechariah and chapter 8. And in verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3 of Zechariah, it says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. It is not called that today. But it will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And then if we go over to Luke chapter 1, which is in the New Testament, if we go over to Luke chapter 1, Obviously, you know Luke's in the New Testament. Pointing out that it's in the New Testament also. Luke chapter 1, and in uh, verse, uh, verse 32, in verse 32, where, uh, so we actually kind of have to start with Gabriel's 
talking to Mary, right? And he says, do not be afraid, Mary, verse 30, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and shall name him Jesus. And then Gabriel says, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. That's what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 20. Because though it's true spiritually that he reigns and his kingdom has no end today, it's not true physically yet, or it has not manifested in the world that we live in. But it will manifest and it will come to pass. And that's what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 20. Now, sometimes there's questions about this, and I'm going to kind of just touch on this for a minute. In just a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the first resurrection. Okay? And there's only two resurrections. There's the first resurrection, and there's the second resurrection. So, the first resurrection happens when Jesus is coming back in this whole thing that I've been calling this rapture event. I don't really like to use the word rapture, but it's a word everybody uses. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet Jesus in the air, and then we will come back together with him. I believe, and we've already talked about this, and I've given you reasons for understanding this, and there are other reasons that you'll hear about on Sunday in the message, that I believe that that will happen some few days before the actual second coming of Jesus. I don't believe that will happen seven years before the second coming of Jesus. But if you do, I'm not going to argue with you about it. It's just what you think. That's fine. But either way, it's going to happen as part of the second coming of Jesus, right? And so that's the first resurrection. So then you think, well, here's the thousand years. I don't know if you've thought of this yet. You think about logic. And you think Jesus comes back and there's, you know, say 8 billion people on the earth. I don't know how many people are going to be there. Well, a lot of them die in the book of Revelation. So let's say there's 4 billion people on the earth anyway. Okay? Of those 4 billion, let's say, you know, if we're lucky, 1 billion are Christians. And, and so they all get raptured or resurrected or whatever. What about those other 3 billion? Do they all get wiped out at Armageddon? Do they just all get killed? And if they do, then who in the world does Satan deceive when he gets out of the bottomless pit after a thousand years? Us? And we're already resurrected. How can we get deceived? You know, and so you've got this question of what about all these, who are these people coming up for Jesus to teach them? Who are these nations that he's going to judge? And he's going to divide them between the goats and the sheep, right? And so when we put all this together, there has to be an understanding um, that I cannot explain because I haven't lived through it yet. And, and as far as I know, it's not completely revealed in Scripture. So we don't need to know all of this, okay? But there's an understanding that, you know, when Jesus comes back at Armageddon, it's the kings and their armies that are destroyed, not all the people on earth, okay? So there will be people on this earth who will enter in to the millennial kingdom the thousand-year reign of Jesus, having not been resurrected yet. And the Bible tells us, we'll look at this in a minute, that we will rule together with Jesus over the nations of the earth. So obviously there must be subjects that we're going to rule over, or that we're going to shepherd, that we're going to care for on this earth. And there's going to be a lot of work to do on this earth. There's nothing in here that's written about Jesus is going to snap his fingers and all the ecological disasters everywhere are going to be cleaned up. And, you know, this world's going to be a mess, as far as I can understand, when the thousand-year reign starts. So I think we're going to be extremely busy for a thousand years. And I have a few things on my short list that I want to be in charge of, by the way, that I've told God about. I don't know if he wants me to be in charge of. But there's some things I'd like to change on this earth if he'd give me the power to do that. You know, and that would be pretty interesting, really. It would be interesting to rule and reign over this earth. But what about those people? You know, are they all going to be deceived when Satan comes out of the bottomless pit and they're all going to go to hell? Some of them, it says they're going to come up and Jesus is going to teach them. Can people still get saved during that thousand-year reign? And if so, how do they get resurrected when the first resurrection already happened and the second resurrection is bad? Has anybody thought of those questions yet? Well, you might think of them tonight, okay? So before, I'm just going to kind of head you off in the past. One of the possible solutions to that, and I'm only saying possible because I don't know, but this is very common, this is just how I see it, very common, number one, it's just in God's sovereignty. He'll take care of it. 
You know, I, I never, I mean, I've done funerals for people that I was pretty certain they went to hell. You know what I mean? Just, but I've never said that because I don't know. And I just do the best, you know, baby at the last minute, you know, they turned their heart to the Lord. I mean, we don't know that. We cannot judge those things. We are not the judge. But I believe that it's very possible uh, the first resurrection is an event, okay, that happens over more than one uh, moment. And here's why. Because it's actually already started. Jesus is the first fruit of the first resurrection, okay? And he's already been raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. So we would not uh, do any violence to the scripture to believe that during this thousand year reign that other people who come to Christ that they would be changed and receive resurrected bodies, okay? In any case, there are scripture uh, in the Old Testament that I just don't have the time to get to today, but you can look them up and read them that give us an understanding that when a person is 100 years old, they'll just be like a little child. That life will be returned back to the way it was in the early days of Genesis. That people will live out long, long, long periods of life. So it's very possible that that means that they're actually not going to die. That they will also be resurrected, transformed, receive this resurrected body. And I have no idea how that's going to work. But... That also seems to answer the question or provides a possible solution to what about all of Israel that it says when Jesus comes back, that Paul talks about this, that Israel will be saved, that they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn, and they will repent. So there will be salvation for Israel. But wait a minute, he's already coming back when they see him, and the first resurrection already happened, so how do they get resurrected? You know, and we don't have to figure all that stuff out. But the first resurrection, I don't think we have to see it as, I don't know if this is even important to you, but, but I, it's important to me to have this understanding that God has a plan for whoever wants to get in on that first resurrection and be blessed, they're going to get in on that first resurrection and be blessed, okay? And that God has a plan for all these things, but, and I'm thankful for this, it's not all revealed to us. He's not telling us all his secrets. He's telling us what we need to know for what purpose. The thing I told you in the beginning of the book of Revelation, so we would get ready. So we would get ready. It's like I've talked about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, does that mean you lose your salvation? I don't even want to talk about it. I just don't want to know what the weeping and gnashing of teeth is. I just want to be ready. I want to be found faithful uh, when, when he comes. So Habakkuk, 2.14, and I won't open that right now, but Habakkuk 2.14 says that in that day, when Christ comes to reign, in that thousand-year day, because remember, it's a day to happen, the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord. The earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord as the water covers over the sea. The earth will be completely covered with the knowledge of the Lord. And that's really important to what we're going to read next, that when Satan is released and the people are deceived. It's not because they did not know. So look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, so there are other dead people, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, not the one after the thousand years, but the one that's before. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, that they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we see here the first death and the first resurrection, the second resurrection and the second death. We see here, other than those that Paul talks about, which is a mystery, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air, right? But as a general rule of thumb, everybody who's born into this earth from the time of Adam, Adam's sin is going to die. 
and every one of us in this room, as much as we don't want to talk about it, we know that that's true. We're going to die. So there's a first death that everyone goes through. But the first death isn't what's scary. Nobody should be scared of the first death. The second death, that's the one that's scary. And so there's a first death and there's a first resurrection. And whoever has part in the first resurrection is blessed. But whoever comes into the second resurrection, which we'll get to, that's the resurrection unto death. Everyone will be raised from the dead. That's really important to understand. But some will be raised unto eternal life. Some will be raised unto eternal damnation, unto eternal death, which is called the second death. Well, we want to focus on those, uh, on that first resurrection here. That's what's being focused on. And notice that he's talking about uh, the people, uh, the souls of those who've been beheaded, and they come to life. So he sees their souls, but they don't have bodies, right? Remember, we saw the souls of these people in the fifth seal, way back in the fifth seal, and they're under the altar. Now, does this mean that he's only talking about those? No, that's like the, the, the group of people that the vision is focusing on, but we understand that this is for all who were in Christ. By putting it together with other verses, even in the book of Revelation, we understand that this is the first resurrection. And all who are in Christ, going way back to Adam and Eve, if they are in Christ, and I guess they are when I read about them in the Bible, even after their sin, they didn't abandon God. You know, all people who are in Christ, who are by faith, it's a mistake to think that people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law, and people in the New Testament are saved by faith. That's absolutely false. Everyone who's ever been saved is saved by faith. I mean, the law didn't come until much, much later in the Old Testament. And it didn't come so that you could be saved by it. Okay? It came to teach us and lead us to Christ. And so everyone is saved by faith. So they are all resurrected during this time. I want you to see, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, that really all of us can be a part of this group. Uh, we are a part of this group today with the, the beheaded group. And I'll explain uh, why in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to talk about our ruling and our reigning together with him. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, and in verse 27, Matthew 19, 27, then Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? So the first question is, have we left everything to follow Jesus? And if we have not, then are we really following Jesus? Because to follow Jesus means to leave everything to follow him. So we left everything to follow him. What then there will be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, he's talking about the resurrection and the regeneration of this earth, the coming of his kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last first. So don't be surprised with the kind of responsibility that God's going to entrust you with in this thousand-year reign of Christ. If you have left everything to follow him, then you are truly a follower, and you will enter into that reward. You will enter into that inheritance. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, this, this is a few verses I picked out. It's, every, it's everywhere. Everywhere. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, Daniel chapter 7, and in verse 18, it says that the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. If you do not see yourself as a ruler in Christ today, then you are not seeing yourself properly. Hey, I got some feedback on what I said on Sunday, positive feedback, mostly. <laughs> it was kind of shocking to say that depression is a sin. Well, I didn't mean that if you feel attacked or tempted by depression, that that's a sin. Maybe more than any temptation is a sin. But if you embrace depression in your life instead of joy, then you're in sin. Because the Bible calls us to walk in joy. 
And, and you know, when I get depressed, I actually say, God, God forgive me so, for being so depressed. I was wrong. I shouldn't be like that. It's not the way I want to be. It's not what you want to be in my life. We need to lift our heads high and walk as rulers who will rule and reign together with Christ Jesus. And it should affect every area of our lives today. Look at me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He has the keys of death and Hades. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. We should walk in that power and in that authority today. And when people say, you know, uh, pastor, could you pray for me? I know sometimes they think they're asking the pastor to pray for them. And because he's the pastor, he or she's the pastor, that they're going to have a special anointing for this prayer. But, but the truth is, barring a gift of healing by the Holy Spirit, there's not going to be some special anointing. There's just going to be the same anointing that belongs to every single believer. Those who believe on my name will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. But you have to know your authority in Christ Jesus. And honestly, it's something I probably don't teach on enough. That needs to be taught on more. It's something that's such a given in my life because I was taught so well. And sometimes I think it's a given for other people. But it's not. You have to know who you are in Christ. And the authority that we have in Christ Jesus and walk in that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's just one example, but what a powerful one. It says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Paul says the saints of Harrington Vineyard Fellowship will sit on thrones and will judge the world together with Christ Jesus. It says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts in your church to decide these problems yourself? I mean, are you not able to do what Jesus said and if somebody's offended you, go to them personally and then if you can't work it out, take another brother with you and if that can't be worked out, then bring you before the church and decide? Can these things not be decided? Can we not trust the word of God in these things? So this is a real-life application of the authority we have in Christ. But then listen to what he says next. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? So it's, it's one thing that God just picks an angel and gives him the key of death and Hades and he ties up Satan for a thousand years. But not only is just an angel able to do that, but you and I are going to judge the fallen angels. We are going to judge the angels. That's a very powerful statement. And so he says, how much more matters in this life? So what he's saying is, grow up and get ready for the responsibility of the millennium. You're going to be given power. You're going to be given authority. So you better learn how to use that authority in this life and start walking in that authority right now. You know, life is like school. However long we're here on this earth, we're supposed to graduate knowing something that's going to carry us over into the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, I mean, I, none of us are going to live for a thousand years on this earth, right? And I'm going to be really happy if I live to a hundred and I'm healthy. And I, I mean that, you know, it would be great. But we're not going to live a thousand years. Nobody in the Bible lived a thousand years. Even Methuselah didn't live a thousand years. Almost, but not quite. But we're going to actually be on this earth in bodies that will look just like us. You look at me, you'll say, that's Kevin Webster. But somehow, because they looked at Jesus, they knew it was Jesus after his resurrection, but it's going to be a glorified body. It doesn't get sick, it doesn't have sin, and somehow can disappear in rooms. Jesus disappeared in the room without opening the door. I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be way beyond Superman. And we're going to be in these bodies, and we're going to be having authority to judge nations. Well, if we didn't graduate from school, we might be in that class of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know. We might be in that class of saved, but as if by fire. You know? So what we're doing on this earth today has consequences in what's going to come in the kingdom of God. And it's very important for us to walk in the authority that God's given us, to walk in the authority that we have in Christ, and to use that to walk in love and to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to people. We will rule and reign together with it. It actually talks about us being these warrior priests, ruling and reigning together with Jesus, that the second death has no authority over us. 
because we've been blessed with the first resurrection. We've been raised together with Jesus in his resurrection. We read in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm not going to open that just for the sake of time now, but we've talked a lot about it. We've talked a little bit about it on Sunday. But in Matthew chapter 25, after Jesus gives the parable of the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins, and then he gives, and all of it's in the context of the second kind, then he gives a parable of the man with five talents, two talents and one talent, and then he tells something that's not a parable. He changes the tune. He tells something that's just straight up fact. Now, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to sit on his throne, and he's going to gather all the nations to himself. Well, we know from reading these other scriptures that we're going to be sitting on thrones with him there, too. Yeah, those 12 disciples are going to get in a little bit better position than old Kevin Webster, I guess, you know, because they're going to be judging the 12. But still, I, mean, I don't care if I just have this little tiny throne. I'm going to be up there on the stage with Jesus. That's going to be awesome. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to have some authority, something that he's given me to do. Right? And so we're going to judge these nations somehow. I don't know how that's going to work, but we're going to judge these nations. We're going to send as judges together with Jesus. He's going to divide them. These are goat nations and these are sheep nations. And the goat nations, they're going to be sent off to death. And the sheep nations, those people will continue on in the kingdom of God for a thousand years. And the whole criteria for the judgment is going to be how did you treat the least of my brothers? What did you do or not do to the least? Of my brother. So we're actually going to be judging, together with Jesus, nations and people based on how they treated us in this life. And that's kind of amazing. It's too amazing for my mind to comprehend, to be honest. But I believe it, and I want to be ready for that. So how should I be living now? So let me talk for a minute about being beheaded. It says, the souls of those who have been beheaded. The Greek word here for beheaded is a unique word, and it literally <laughs> means that their heads were removed by an axe. Okay, their heads were removed by an axe. And uh, I want you to understand something right now, that all true believers in Christ Jesus are always being beheaded, okay? Because, number one, there's two, two factors to this, I want two sides that I want you to understand. The first one is this. This word is only used here in the whole Bible. It's, it's a unique word that they were, their heads were chopped off. Their heads were removed by an axe. So in Rome, as in Greece, nobody's head was removed by an axe except for the most noble of people. Only royalty had their heads removed by axes. You know, uh, a Roman citizen could never be crucified except in very extreme circumstances. That's why Peter was crucified and Paul was not. But to have your head removed by an axe, that was some form of execution only for nobles. And so there's something being said in this word about the nobility of these princes in Christ Jesus. Because we are princes in Christ Jesus. And every attack that Satan has ever leveled against you at any point in your life has only one goal in it, to behead you. Because your head is Christ Jesus. And everything that Satan tries to do to a family, tries to do to a person, tries to do to a church, is always about cutting off the head, cutting us off from Christ Jesus. So all Christians are those who are beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. If you're really living a testimony of Jesus, you will be being beheaded. Now maybe you won't actually physically get beheaded. I don't know that you will be being under that attack of being beheaded because of the word of God. And you are those people who do not worship the beast. Are we worshiping the beast today? They don't worship his image. They don't receive the mark on their forehead and on their hand. They will come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. So Satan loses. He loses. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And I talked about that last week, the different meanings of Gog and Magog. To gather them together for the war. The number of them, so it's another war, not the Armageddon war, but the ultimate war. Armageddon is not the ultimate war. This is the ultimate war. This is the final war. This is the last world war. To gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So, 
a lot of people are going to be good to see, right? Not just a few people, but a lot of people. And you think, how is that even possible to live for a thousand years under the rank of Christ? And then all of a sudden you think, oh yeah, of course it's possible. Same thing happened with Adam and Eve. <laughs> it's who we are, you know? And it's how deceptive Satan is. And so people are sort of not those in the first resurrection, not us, if we're in the first resurrection. Because notice it says, the second death has no power over them. But the nations in this earth, even the sheep nations, having lived a thousand years under the reign of Christ, they will be grumbling, they will be complaining, there's going to be, you know, something in them that's open to deception. And Satan will be released, and he will deceive them. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So it's the same Armageddon-type location. But this time, fire comes down from heaven and devours them in an instant. Just like in the book of Exodus at the rebellion of Korah when they rose up against Moses, who is a type of Christ, and against God, that the earth opened up and just swallowed them in an instant. So fire will come down from heaven and devour them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. That's number three. First, the Antichrist and the false prophet get thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now the devil. He's not having a good day. He just got out of prison, and he's immediately thrown into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So there's only three inhabitants in that lake so far, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and forever. Anybody that tells you that that's a metaphor in the Bible does not believe what the Bible says, because there's nothing metaphorical about being tormented day and night, forever and forever. And that's what's in store for all who are not in Christ Jesus, okay? And the first people to go there, uh, the false prophet, uh, the Antichrist, and now Satan. So let me tell you something about uh, why, at least, again, it's hard to answer why, but those questions are out there. Let me just give you a fact, anyway, about why Satan gets led out of the jail, okay? Um, First of all, I'd call this checkmate, you know, that uh, there's going to be a, a new heaven and a new earth. That's coming in chapter 21. Everything has to be cleaned up. So there's one more move that Satan has to make before God utterly closes the defeat in on him. Okay? But you know the scripture says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word must be established. So this is number three, actually. You see, there are three main temptations that Satan levels against the human race in the scripture, okay? Number one is when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. To, and why did he do that? Because he wanted to destroy God's creation. He wanted to destroy God's children because God loves us and for us, he created everything that exists. And nobody wants to believe that today, but I'm telling you, mark my words, there are not people living on other planets somewhere. Maybe demons living out there and they may appear in UFOs or something, I don't know. But God does not have another, I guess it's theoretically possible, but the Bible makes it so clear that we are the heart of his creation. He created all this for us, okay? And uh, so he wants to destroy it. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation is the temptation of Christ. He wanted to bring down the Son of God so that he could destroy all of the world and all the human race. And he said to Jesus, if you just bow down to me, I'm going to establish your kingdom right now. And Jesus refused to do it, right? He tempted Christ. And that's described for, to us in Revelation 12, where it says that he waited to devour the son that the, that the woman gave birth to, right? We looked at all that. And here is the ultimate third temptation. When he comes, even in the middle of the kingdom of God, to once again destroy God's plan on this earth. So in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word must be established. So I think that that at least is a part of it. That it must be established that Satan is Satan. And, you know, whether we like it or not, that's God's justice. 
And so this is the third time, and the third time he proves it, and God casts him into the lake. Before this, he's been in jail for a thousand years. Now, he's in an eternal prison where he'll be tormented day and night forever and forever. So we'll finish with verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, so were back, brought back to the great throne, where the Father is said, seated upon the throne. Remember, way back in chapter 4, there was this image, this vision of the great throne. So we're brought back to this great throne, a great white throne in him. This is the Father God who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. No place was found for what? There was no place found for earth and heaven. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. So who are the dead? They are not those who are in the first resurrection. You understand? It says all the dead, great and small, perhaps beginning with Cain. You know, there's the first murderer in the Bible. I don't know whether they went to heaven or not. You know, we're into the bosom of heaven or not. But every dead person who's ever died not in Christ, every dead person who's ever died in all of human history and has not enjoyed the first resurrection of Christ. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book. These are scrolls. So the first one's plural, the second one's singular. Notice that. That books, plural, or scrolls, plural, were opened. And another book or scroll was opened, which is the book of life. So the whole book of Revelation, we've been talking about this book of life. right? The Lamb's book of life. You know, the seven seals all this. Uh, so the book of life is open. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds, plural. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake fire. So this is what it's usually referred to when somebody's talking about the great white throne judgment. The great judgment. This is judgment day. You know, people talk about judgment day. This is judgment day. I don't know if I'm going to this tonight. We've already touched on it. But there are other judgments. You know, the Bible tells us that Christ will sit upon his judgment seat and that he will give to some uh, gold, silver, whose works are gold, silver, and precious stones that won't be burned up in the fire. That's written to Christians, okay? And some people's works are going to be burned up in the fire because they're just wood-hanging stone. But they will be saved as if by fire. So that's talking about passing out rewards, okay? That's not talking about eternal salvation. That some people, some Christians, are going to get to heaven but just by the skin of their teeth. You know, they're going to get into the kingdom of God, but they're not going to have any rewards. They're not going to have any crowns, or very few crowns. You know, that's all that God's understanding. But that, it's written to challenge us that we would go for the gold. That we don't want to get the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. I want that. You know, I want to be rewarded in the day. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But this is not that same judgment. This is what is, you know, ultimate judgment day. This is a final judgment. It's really important that you notice this, okay? This is the throne of the Father. He's sitting alone. He's sitting supreme over this final judgment, the Father God. And here is the criteria for this judgment. Every judgment has a criteria. So the criteria for this judgment are the books of their deeds. So it's implied that every person has a book where a ledger is kept of their deeds in this life. Now, if you ever read one of those little John Chick pamphlets way back, and made it like God's going to show a video, and you're going to have to watch a video of your life, and it's going to be really painful for you and everything. Maybe it will be like that, I don't know. But it talks about books, not about a video, okay? So the scroll is opened up, and yeah, it's just going to be read right there in front of your face. And I'm saying your, but I hope I'm not referring to any of these people, because I'm talking to Christians tonight. We should not be in this. We could have this happen to us. We've all got the same bad deeds in our life, right? But by the blood of Jesus, we've been saved. 
So when you preach to people, don't be afraid to preach this to them and tell them the truth. They're going to be judged according to those books. You need to get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life because there are two criteria here. But the first criteria is what we would call a de facto criteria. Okay? The facts of the law. God is going to prove that you've broken every one of the Ten Commandments. You know, you're going to say like that righteous dude, the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus, I have kept all these commandments all my life. Well, Jesus didn't argue with them then. But you bet you he's going to get an argument on that day. Oh, yeah? Well, what about that time you lied to your fourth grade teacher? Well, that, that wasn't that big of a deal. It was just a little like, it was a lie. You bore false witness. Check. No word for this. What about that? You know, and every one of us said, you know in your life that that had to be happened today in your life. You've already broken every one of the Ten Commandments, either in thought or in actual action. It's, it's, it's done. And all you have to do is break one command to be guilty of the entire law. So you're guilty. So they're going to be found guilty, but they're going to have their day in court. They'll have their day in court. They can try to defend themselves, but they won't be able to defend themselves. But then there's also the de jure, or the real legal uh, criteria of this whole thing. At the end of the day, no matter how nice it looks in your book, no matter you know if you've got a B plus even in your book, the fact is we're looking at this other scroll, the Lamb's Book of Life, and your name ain't in here. So you're not going in. You're judged. Remember Jesus said that in that day, many will say, look at my book. It's real clean. I mean, I was casting out demons in your name. You know, and I was healing the sick in your name. I was preaching the name of Jesus. And Jesus just meant, let me look at the book of life. Yeah, I don't even know who you are. Depart from me. For I never knew you. Your name was never written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the ultimate goal of this life is to be saved by the blood of the Lamb. To have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And at the end of this story, after they've been, they've been raised from the dead, it says earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That's going to come into play in chapter 21 because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's like, I try to imagine this like some of those films with the special effects. It's like this great judgment that's like a star going nova or something, you know? <laughs> and it's like this vacuum and everything's just fleeing away from it or being sucked into it. And at the end of this judgment, there's just a new heaven and a new earth that come forth. And there's gonna be a refurbishing of the heavens and the earth. So everything flees away from this. This is the end of everything. This is the judgment day. It's real interesting to me that the people, they don't even have names at the end of the story. It says, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So their names aren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life, so they don't even have names anymore. They're just called death and Hades. Just death and Hades. These are the people who will live in eternal death and will be tormented in this lake of fire as they're thrown into this lake of fire that burns for all eternity. I remind you of our lessons on this, that there are different compartments, if you will, of the underworld, and Hades is the name, the, the proper, uh, I would say it's better than the word hell because it, it comes from the Greek there. The word Hades is basically what we usually call hell. It's where people who die without Christ go today, okay? And then Tartarus, or the uh, bottomless pit, is that jail where Satan's put in there. But then there's the lake of fire. And right now, nobody lives in the lake of fire. Nobody's there right now. No, but they will be cast into the lake of fire. And I would remind you that Jesus said that this lake that burns with fire, burns with brimstone, that it was made for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made for people. We're not supposed to go there. And we don't have to go there. And for this, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, I just thank you for your word this evening. Lord, I thank you for the coming of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would stir the desire of our heart to seek first the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. 
and your righteousness. This is your righteousness, Lord. And we would seek first that kingdom of God. As the Apostle Paul preached to Felix, and we read about it in Acts, that he preached to a righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Lord, that we would believe in this coming judgment. And we would live our lives in such a way that we would be witnesses, that we would be like Peter uh, and John, who said to the rulers that you can judge yourself whether we should listen to you or to God, but we cannot stop talking about the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. We cannot stop talking about this because there is a coming judgment and we have to prepare the way for our Lord and we have to bring people into his kingdom. If there's any chance for people to be saved, they have to hear. We can't let them die without ever having heard the truth of God's love for them and that they don't have to go to the lake of fire that there is uh, as the old preacher said you know a heaven to gain and a hell to shine that there is a way to turn and there has been made a way to come back to you lord i pray that we would not tremble or be in fear whatever tomorrow may bring whatever next week may bring whatever may happen in this world that we would know your position in the heavens and that we would sit together with you in the heavenly places today because the Bible says that that's actually where we're seated already in the heavenly places with you, Lord, and that we would begin to practice our ruling and our reigning today in love, Lord, to fulfill your plan and your purpose on this earth and for our lives. And I thank you for this word this evening. I thank you for your coming kingdom. I thank you that you will rule and reign on this earth. When I read about this, I actually get kind of excited about it. It's going to be really fun. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be really exciting, Lord, to live on an earth where there's no corruption of sin, to live on the earth where there's no deception from Satan, Lord, just to have one day before all of eternity, because this isn't even eternity yet. This is just the last thousand years. But to have one day before all of eternity to experience what it meant to be Adam and Eve in that garden before we fell, Lord, just to really experience that in our lives. And I thank you that we're going to have that opportunity. And I pray you bless this word in our hearts and let it grow in there and bring forth great fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.